We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Hear the word of God from the gospel according to John, chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may take your seats. pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that we've just heard, and we thank you that your word is more than just ink on a page. It is more than just pixels on a screen. Your word is living and active. Lord, you inhabit your word, and that is what we need, God, this morning. We need to hear from you, Um, and so we pray that you would speak to us Uh, speak to us wherever we are this morning, whether we are totally unconvinced that you are even real, whether we're here and overwhelmed by the troubles of life and barely holding on to you by a thread, whether we're here and we are so comfortable and, Lord, we, we, we want to get close to you but don't have any sense of our great need of you whether we're here and our hearts are aflame and we 
want more of you in our lives. God, all of us need the same thing. We need you. We need you to fill us with wonder. You need, we need you to give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you. And so, God, we pray that you would speak powerfully through to each of us this morning through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is so good to be with you this morning. If I have not met you, I would love to meet you after the service. Brent and I will be up in the front, and so please come up and introduce yourself to us. We would love the opportunity to meet you and to, to learn your names. As Brent said, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is a season where Christians have throughout history looked back on the first coming of Jesus and looked forward to the second coming of Jesus. We're caught in between the first and second coming of Jesus. We have reasons to celebrate, and yet our celebration and our joy is still mingled with sorrow because we live in a world filled with trouble and our lives are still filled with trouble. And so this Advent season, we're starting this new sermon series called He Shall Be Called, and it's based on Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 which says, for to us a child is given, uh, to, to, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, and Mighty God, and Prince of Peace, and Everlasting Father. Isaiah is writing this promise during a time of great darkness, and it's a word of hope to people who are suffering. And these names that he gives, these names of the Messiah, still have great meaning for us as we consider what it means that Jesus came into this world and that he's coming back. Some of you might be thinking, I thought Jesus' name is Jesus. Why does Isaiah give us these other names? Well, all of us have many names. When I introduce my wife to people, I don't say, well, this is Susan. I say, this is my wife, Susan. She is Susan, she is wife, she is mommy, she is daughter, she has so many names, and all of us have many names. Names that say something about our relationship with people. And these names that Isaiah gives us are actually names that tell us what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. They are relational names. Mighty God, we're going to look at that name next Sunday. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. That's the name we're going to be looking at this morning. What does it mean that Jesus is our Wonderful Counselor? What does it mean for Christmas that Jesus is Wonderful Counselor? Well, it doesn't mean that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year where kids are jingle-belling and everyone is telling you to be of good cheer. You see, the Bi in the Bible, wonder doesn't mean good times. It doesn't mean good feels. Wonder is actually not a feeling. Wonder is a perspective. Wonder is what you experience when you encounter something that is bigger than you expected that makes you feel smaller than you expected. There's this great scene in the book Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis where Lucy is talking to Aslan, the godlike creator and ruler of the magical world of Narnia. And Lucy says, Aslan, you look bigger. 
And Aslan replies, well, that's because you're older. And Lucy says, don't you mean because you're older? And Aslan says, no, dear one. When every year you get older and bigger, I will look bigger to you. What Aslan is saying is that our perspective, when it comes to God, our perspective never changes. Normally in life, as you get older and as you get bigger, the things around you look smaller. Have you ever tried going back to your, visit your old elementary school and noticed how tiny everything looks? But not with God. The older you get, the wiser you get, the bigger you get, the bigger he becomes, the wiser he becomes, and the more wonder you feel. To say that Jesus is our wonderful counselor means that he is so glorious that in our presence, our wonder will never stop growing. And this is good news for us this morning, because that means that whether you are filled with sorrow this morning or you are filled with joy Every single one of us in this room could be filled with wonder. What makes Jesus so wonderful to us? Well, we're going to look at three things in this passage. It's, it's part of a larger section of the Gospel of John that's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's a long conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on his last night, during his last supper with them, before his crucifixion. And in this portion, Jesus tells us about this wonderful counselor that he is sending to us and the wonderful counselor that he is. What makes Jesus wonderful? We're going to look at three things that we, as we break down this passage. We're going to look at our need, our counselor, and our wonder. So let's start by looking at our need. Jesus starts this passage by telling us, if you love me, keep my commands. Jesus is telling us how we can know that we love him. How do you know that you love God? Is it because you go to church? Is it because you had an amazing experience at a retreat or because you get all the feels during worship? How do you know that you love God? Well, Jesus says there's only one thing that you really need to look at. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. And if you love me, you will obey my commands. You know how much you love Jesus by looking at how much you obey Jesus. He says it even more strongly in verse 24. Take a look at that in your guides. Jesus says, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. He's saying, if you think you love me, but you do not obey me, that word does not mean what you think it does to you. And if you know yourself at all, this one verse, verse 15, should really unsettle you. Because any of us can obey God some of the time, but none of us can obey God all of the time. If we look closely at the way that we've lived this past week, maybe even this morning, we would all find more reasons to question our love for God than we would to assure us of our love for God. And some of you at this point might be thinking, this is, see, this is why I don't go to church. It just, pastors are always trying to make you feel bad about yourself. They're trying to make you feel guilty. They, and, and that is not what Christianity is about, and that's actually not what this passage is about. Jesus is not saying this. 
to make us feel bad. He's actually saying this, this passage, he's saying this because he knows that we already feel bad. You see, religion is in decline in the United States, but guilt is not in decline. Shame is not in decline. A few years ago, there was this really thought-provoking article called The Strange Persistence of Guilt, and it was written by a, a professor of classical history. And he says that atheism was supposed to create a second innocence, a garden of Eden without God or Satan. It makes sense. If in a world where there is no God and there is no Satan, everyone should feel innocent. No one should feel guilty, but he says that's not what happened. It didn't work. As civilization became more advanced and our beliefs became more secular, we haven't become less guilty. We actually feel more guilty than ever. He writes, guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized into an ever more powerful and pervasive element. You don't need to believe in God to feel guilty. It's something that we all struggle with, a weight that all of us carry. So where does guilt come from? If guilt is purely psychological, then all you would need is therapy. Think about, think about a father who breaks his promise to a child, and his child is in tears, she's devastated, and the dad goes to his daughter, and instead of saying, I'm sorry, he says, look, don't worry about it. Don't worry about this. I have a session with my therapist tomorrow, and I'm going to talk to them about my problem with guilt. How do you think that daughter would respond? Well, you, you would look at that dad, and you would say, that is a horrible father, because what he needs is not therapy, he needs reconciliation. He doesn't need to talk to his therapist, he needs to talk to his daughter. He has a relationship with the real person that has gone sideways, and the only way to deal with his guilt is to deal with the person that he's hurt. Well, according to the Bible, our guilt is more than just a psychological problem. It's more than just a social problem. It's actually a spiritual problem. God is more than just an idea for us to accept or reject. He's actually a person that we can love or reject. According to the Bible, the reason we feel guilty is every single one of us has gone sideways with God. We've rejected God in innumerable ways that a lot of us don't even understand or we're aware of. And we need help. We need help to get right with God. And the good news is that God gives us the help we need. Look at verse 16. Immediately after saying, if you love me, keep my commands, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Now, this word advocate is translated differently in just about every English Bible. Some English Bibles translate this word uh, helper. Some translate it comforter. In the older version of the NIV, it was translated counselor. Uh, which is the right translation? Well, all of, the, all of them are. This is a Greek word that cannot be translated perfectly into English, but the word advocate is a great way to look at what Jesus is saying here this morning. The Greek word parakleton uh, means someone who is beside you to comfort you and to defend you. 
They're, they're like a counselor who helps you when you're feeling anxious and worried and overwhelmed and depressed. But they're more than just a counselor. They're an advocate who's going to stand by your side and stick up for you and defend you. They're compassionate, but they're also fierce. And you see, Christmas tells us that our hope is not found in becoming better people. It comes from having an advocate, a counselor, who will stand by you to help you and to comfort you and to defend you. And some of you have had amazing advocates in your life. You have friends who stand up for you who will get your back no matter what. You have ride or die friends in your life. But even your closest friends can't help you with your problem with guilt. They can't take away your regrets. None of them can make you right with God. Some of you have never had an advocate in your life. You have never had anyone stand up for you or fight for you. You feel like you've been alone your entire life. And Jesus is saying you're not alone. You have the ultimate advocate who will not only help you face whatever problems you're dealing with in your life, but he will help you face your guilt and give you peace. This brings us to the second thing we want to look, in, look at in today's passage, our counselor. Jesus, in verse 16, says he will ask the Father to send us another advocate, another counselor. That means there is a first advocate, a first counselor. Who is the first advocate? Well, Jesus is the first advocate. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This is a letter written by John, the same person who wrote the gospel according to John. And he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, uh, John calls Jesus our advocate with the Father. That means when the Father sees you in everything that you've done wrong, when he sees all of your brokenness, all of your sin and disobedience, you have an advocate. You don't stand before God by yourself. Jesus stands beside you, and Jesus says to his Father, I died for them on the cross. You already punished me for their sin. There is no condemnation for them. You can't punish them when you already punish me. I fulfilled the law. I fulfilled justice. They cannot be guilty for sins that I already paid for with my blood. This is the incredible advocacy of Jesus. You see, the incredible thing about Christianity is that God's forgiveness is both merciful and just. God's forgiveness is merciful because none of us deserve it. We're all, we've all gone sideways with God. We don't deserve it, but it's perfectly just because Jesus, as our advocate, takes credit for every wrong that we've ever done. And so when God looks at your sin, he doesn't say no harm, no foul. He looks at Jesus and says, you are innocent because your advocate, Jesus, took credit for your sin. See, if you want to be a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus is more than just someone who makes your life better. He is your advocate. 
the advocate that you need more than anyone else in this life. And you have to stop advocating for yourself, which is what every single one of us is tempted to do. Whenever anyone calls me out, my first instinct is to stand up for myself, to defend myself, to advocate for myself. But when it comes to God, that will not help us. It will harm us. There's this great scene in the book, great, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, another Lewis illustration. This is the last one today, I promise. Uh, the Great Divorce is this great story about people who are on a field trip from hell or purgatory to heaven. And um, Lewis, in this story, talks about a woman who is in hell, and she won't stop complaining about everybody who's ever wronged her in her life. And she grumbles and grumbles, and her grumbling continues, and it doesn't stop. And this is what he writes. He says, it begins with a grumbling mood, and you still are distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it, yet can repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumbling itself going on forever and ever like a machine. This is a really poignant picture of how pointless it is to advocate for yourself when you are in the presence of God. This woman is in hell, and all she can do is complain about everything that everyone else did to her. There is no remorse for her own sin, there is no acknowledgement of any wrongdoing on her own part. There is no desire for forgiveness. All there is is blame and grumbling. It's someone else's fault. Grumble. They hurt me. Grumble. They, they did this to me. That's why I'm this way. Grumble. She blames everyone else for everything that is broken inside of her, which makes her grumbling, and the grumbling never stops because grumbling cannot take away your guilt. It actually only intensifies your guilt, and the more guilt there is, the more grumbling there is until all that is left in you is a grumble. Have you ever been caught in that cycle of blaming people for problems in your life? Have you ever been stuck thinking about all the people who have, got, who have wronged you and, and blame them for your brokenness? Have you ever started to grumble about somebody and found it hard to stop? I have. And if you have, you know that it is a miserable place to be. You become a prisoner of your own discontent, a prisoner of your own grumbling. See, the cure to grumbling is to stop advocating for yourself and to let Jesus advocate for you. In the court of law, you are only as good as your lawyer. If you are guilty, but you have a good lawyer, you will be declared innocent. If you are innocent and you have a bad lawyer, you will be declared guilty. You are only as good as your advocate, only as good as your lawyer, and Jesus shows us we should never try to represent ourselves in the court of God's justice because he is a far better advocate than we ever could be for ourselves. Jesus is more merciful with us than we could ever be to ourselves. He is more just than we could ever be. Some of you are wondering, how can I ever, ever believe that I can be forgiven. I've done so many things that are so wrong that I'm so ashamed of, and I've hurt people, and, I, and I, I can't undo the hurt that I've caused. 
And Christmas says, stop trying to advocate for yourself. Look to Jesus and let him defend you. Let him be your advocate. Let him pay for your sin. Stop trying to pay for your own sin. And stop trying to make everything right that you have made wrong. Let Jesus advocate for you. Some of you are here this morning and you believe that Jesus is your advocate. You believe that you have received forgiveness, but you still feel far from God. Maybe you once loved God, but you don't feel much of anything for God these days. You're asking, can I ever love God again? How do you believe these things in a way that changes you and moves you and fills you with wonder? Well, for that, we need another advocate. This brings us to the last thing we're going to look at this morning, our wonder. Jesus is more than just a good counselor. He is a wonderful counselor, and that means he inspires wonder. How does he do that? He does it by sending another advocate, and he calls this advocate the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. You see, Jesus defends us and advocates for us before the presence of the Father. You know what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit defends us and advocates for us before the presence of ourselves. He defends us from ourselves. When we are numb to our guilt, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our great need for forgiveness. When we are overwhelmed with our guilt, the Holy Spirit comforts us with the reality of God's mercy. When we become hard and cold, the Holy Spirit softens us and warms our hearts up. How does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, in verse 17, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts by moving into our hearts. The Spirit lives with you and will be in you, Jesus says. See, the Holy Spirit works in our lives by living in us. The Holy Spirit is not a consultant that we call every now and then when we need help. He is a resident who lives inside our hearts, inside our lives. And when the Holy Spirit moves into your heart, he brings the entire trinity with him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit also live inside of you because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. In verse 20, Jesus says, a day is coming when you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, we, he's talking about his Father and himself, we will come to them and make our home with them. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and brings the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to live inside of you. And this is the promise of Christmas, that the Holy Spirit will live with you forever. The same Holy Spirit that conceived Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary in Matthew chapter 1 lives inside of you. In Luke chapter 1, The angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And if you've ever believed in Jesus, that means that this has already happened to you. The the Spirit of the Most High is living inside of you. The power of the Most High has and is overshadowing you. One moment 
You thought that the idea that Jesus loves you meant nothing to you. And in the next moment, it melts your heart. That is the Holy Spirit living inside of you. One moment, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. And you, you feel paralyzed. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to lift a finger. You feel stuck. And the next moment, the thought that Jesus is guarding you will give you a peace that transcends understanding. That is a Holy Spirit living inside of you, overshadowing you. One moment you will feel like an absolute failure, and the next moment you're holding your head high because you are confident that God counts you righteous because you have been credited with the perfect life of Jesus. And that is the Holy Spirit overshadowing you, working in you, teaching you, filling you with wonder. And this is both absolutely humbling and absolutely comforting. It's humbling because it means that you cannot take credit for anything that you do. You cannot take credit for your love for Jesus. You can't take credit for your faith. Your faith is a gift from God. Your wonder is a gift from God. But it's also empowering because it means, this means that there is a power at work inside of you that is bigger than you, bigger than your failure, bigger than your sin, bigger, bigger than the fickleness of your heart bigger than your troubles, your circumstances, your brokenness. All you need to do is pay attention to the power of Most High that has overshadowed you and is living inside of you. If you have never believed in Jesus, have you ever considered that you cannot believe in Jesus in your own strength? You actually need help. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage, that faith is not a virtue that we accomplish. It's a gift that is received from God. And that's actually why we have prayers printed in our worship guides every week, prayers for those who do not yet believe. Because no one gets to take credit for their faith, which is humbling and it's scary, but it's also comforting because it means that there is a power that wants to work in your life that is bigger than you. I want to invite you to pray this morning. During our time of communion, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to make Jesus real to you and give you faith. Isaiah chapter 9 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And if you've ever put your faith in Jesus, then this great king lives inside of you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that incredible? You know, celebrities auction themselves for charity. You see this in the news sometimes, some crazy amount of money that somebody paid to hang out with a celebrity. Um, in 2011, someone paid $105,000 to spend a couple hours with Oprah as a VIP on the last episode of the Oprah Winfrey Show, which is pretty cool, right? But $105,000, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, it costs money. It costs a lot to be close to greatness in this life. And the incredible story of Christmas is that the greatest person in the universe 
paid the ultimate cost to be with you, to live in you. And you are precious to him. And he will not let you be alone. He will not let you live your life like an orphan. There is help for you. There is power available to you. And he will never leave you. He is staying with you forever. And that is what this table represents. See, this table tells you who you really are. You may have been eating nothing but cup of noodles this past week, or you might have had the, the most amazing Thanksgiving feast you ever dreamed possible. But at this feast, Jesus tells every single one of us, at this table, Jesus says we are not defined by what we eat in this world, but by this table, this feast that he has prepared for sons and daughters of the King of Kings. This is a table that is meant to fill us with wonder because this table tells you who you really are. You are not what you experience every other day of the week. You are who you are at this table, part of God's family, a son and daughter of the king, and he wants to feast with you. He wants to be with you, and he's paid the ultimate cost to do it. And so do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Come to this table and taste and see the peace that God has for you in his presence. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this great hope that you've given us in Jesus, a hope that is bigger than our sin, a hope that is bigger than this world. And we pray that as we take and handle and touch and eat of this mercy and of this grace, that we would sense your presence in us and that it would fill us with wonder and it would change us completely. In Jesus' name, amen.